Talk Live. Welcome to Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, the creator, I guess you'd say, of the Liberty Conspiracy. I've mentioned it before. I don't know exactly how to term it, but we have a program every Monday through Friday starting at 6 o'clock that you can check out on Rumble, on Rockfin, and on my Twitter feed, which is at Gard Goldsmith, G-A-R-D Goldsmith. We have some segments that are over on YouTube, but of course they're very censorious there. So if you want to watch the show while we're streaming, it's 6 o'clock Monday through Friday at Rumble and Rockfin. Just look up Liberty Conspiracy or on my Twitter feed, which is at Gard Goldsmith. Check it out, and if you're coming after the fact, we welcome you as well and lay down any comments you might have. Please hit the thumbs up, spread the word, and we really appreciate fellow conspirators because freedom is definitely out of fashion nowadays. You can also find my fiction. I very rarely mention this, but there are some releases that are going to be coming up, and it sort of reminded me to mention that if you want to find my fiction, that is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Just look up Gardner Goldsmith, G-A-R-D-N-E-R Goldsmith, and I would welcome your comments about any of the three novellas that are out so far. I have two novels that are going to be coming out and three more novellas that are going to be coming out as well. Part of the reason for the delay is because I declined a contract with a publishing company because they wanted me to use a pseudonym to disconnect from my political statements online. Can you believe it? Yeah, it's true. So I dropped that and we're just seeing what happens. Welcome your support of the fiction as well. Remember Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And of course you can find my Substack, that being the Gardner Goldsmith Substack. And every Sunday for free, we put out the Sunday news assembly, which includes at least 20 stories that in my estimation probably have something to do with liberty and a lot of contextual information that helps draw out from those flash news stories some longer-term lessons about liberty, economics, and morality. Check it out. It's the Sunday News Assembly at Gardner Goldsmith Substack. So without further ado, let's get into some of the prime choices, some of the prime cuts from Liberty Conspiracy. And thank you again for listening to Free Talk Live. Greatly appreciated. Thanks for being a supporter of Freedom. I I want to address something that I I heard over the weekend, and I just found this unbelievable. It goes a little bit deeper, uh, both psychologically, culturally, uh, into contemporary scenes and into ancient religious traditions and takes on Christianity. And for that, I'm going to turn to my video collections and what I've put together here for you. Now, there is a man who was up speaking. You know, Trump was in New Hampshire. I think he went to Iowa as well. And he's been all over the place. Trump is everywhere. You know, father of Operation Warp Speed and the jab and, you know, his emergency declaration on March 13th, 2020, led to many of the state governments imposing the lockdowns breaching the contract clause, breaching the first, second, third, first, second, fourth, 
5th, 6th, 8th, 9th, and 10th Amendments, uh, all sorts of terrible things. And um, so I put this together. I want to show you this, uh, this title that I put together that I think is appropriate because there was someone speaking on behalf of Donald Trump at one of his gatherings. Let me show you this larger. I said, on this anniversary of rebellion against illegitimate authority, cronyism, and thugocracy, we see some people who are mightily confused or intent on confusing others about legitimate human so-called authority over others and about resistance to all illegitimate attempts to control, steal, harm, etc. So let me show you this. Listen to this. This came from the rising after they went through a segment where Nick Fuentes was looking like an obnoxious idiot. And um, listen to this guy spouting off here. This election is part. This election is. Yeah. So here we go. This election is part of a spiritual battle. There are demonic forces at play. But I want to remind those who have fallen prey to the leadership of such demons. All right, I want to stop there. All right, so um, because there's a much larger segment, he makes a biblical reference. And this is something I've heard many, many times. Sometimes it's done just because people uh, haven't really discussed it too much. Sometimes people truly believe it. Sometimes people use it as a lever for political reasons to try to gain people's acceptance of the usurpation of their own um, their own volition, their own self-will. Um, and I think that that is absolutely despicable. It is just vile. Um, but the argument for government is pretty vile, too. And uh, it they run parallel. They walk hand in hand here. Uh, so the first thing he says, he says it's demonic. Well, this, that's what the state is. The state runs contrary to every facet of individual volition and free will to be able to connect, connect with God. The state claims authority over people. That runs against the Ten Commandments. It runs against what Jesus said. It runs against the very logical out, output that we can take from the world around us and the fact that we exist. The fact that God created the world requires us to be individuals and to make our own decisions. And anything that artificially gets in the way of that is not godly. In other words, it's demonic. It's satanic. Putting the state above God, claiming the state is an authority over your own free will is problematic. And it is something that Satan would love. The state itself is evil incarnate. It is perpetuated. It is something that lives on its own in a way in the minds of people who think that the state needs to exist or think that they can take advantage of people who think that the state needs to exist. That's demonic. You're stealing, you're robbing people of what God gave them, free will. And only with free will can you come to God. That's why bad things happen on earth. People often say, you know, it's, it, it, and I often bring this up. If you read Candide by Voltaire, a bunch of bad things happen, right? People say, well, if God exists, why do bad things happen? Because God gave us free will. That's why. 
right? If only good things happened, we wouldn't need free will. We could just sit back and let everything happen. We wouldn't have to act. We wouldn't have to discern, discriminate between right and wrong, good and bad, choice versus choice, bad choice, made a mistake, apologize, interact with people. None of it would be necessary if only good things happen to people. Bad things have to happen. That's the way it works. Otherwise, our free will is negated. There is no necessity for free will. The state is one of the things that tries to replace our free will. It tries to say, I will make things safer for you. How? By taking advantage of someone else. The state operates through coercion, extortion, and theft. All of those things are ungodly. All of those things are demonic. All of those things are satanic, and they erode your soul. So this man, speaking the way that he is, is lying because he's not giving the full picture. He's saying that the choice you make for continuation and perpetuation of this shakedown, force-creating, force-perpetuating entity called the polis, the, the choice you make, you must put someone in there, and that will be your godly choice. No, it won't be your godly choice. It won't. First of all, even if you thought you were making a good choice, you're making a choice that is going to supersede somebody else's choice, right? So again, it's just perpetual, perpetual predation and perpetual fighting over who's going to run things, right? But in addition to that, the only way the state can exist, and we can't be melancholy about it, we can't be naive about it, anything like that, right? We can't be sanguine about it. We've got to recognize that the only way the state can exist and function is through taking stuff from people and pushing people around. Even if people think they're going to get the state to reduce in size, they're still going to be operating a state. The state is immoral. So people have to make their own decisions on that. But this is not what this guy is talking about. And to think about demonic, just look at the person he's supporting. And we'll pause it again to think about this. Think of the person he's supporting. This election is part of a spiritual battle. There are demonic forces at play. Okay, so we'll stop there again. Do you think he's thinking about the spirits of the fetuses that were killed to create the permanent fetal stem cell line that was used for three quarters of these mRNA jabs for their testing and experimentation? You think, he, you think he's thinking about that? You think he's thinking about the rights that were snatched away from people when their money was taken from them to fund an illegitimate, immoral, and also unconstitutional system to create the jabs and then disseminate them? The lying that occurred in all those things and the man he's supporting who pushed all of it and never talked about the abortions behind all this stuff, Mr. Christian Man. What about the spirits of those kids? They could be standing next to you right now. They would be older than you, young man, if they hadn't been killed. So that, of course, Donald Trump's magic bullet of mRNA nonsense which is now harming millions of people, killing hundreds of thousands of people, 
could be created for the benefit of the government, the police state, and the pharmaceutical corporations and their media buddies. But I want to remind those who have fallen prey to the leadership of such demons, have fallen prey to the diabolic forces, and have become pawns to their schemes. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 4. This is where we're going to pause it right here. This is the key. Romans 13. The Romans 13, uh, along with one other portion of the Bible, I hear most often cited as the so-called Christian justification, God's justification to acquiesce to the state, to politicians, to other people who are claiming authority over us with a bunch of documents or guns pointed at us, right? They have different trappings. They don't wear mafia suits. They wave around a piece of paper as they come in. It might have just been signed that afternoon, or maybe it's a piece of paper that other people in other generations signed. But as a person-to-person interaction, it's aggression. That's what it is. That's not godly. And to think that they will quote Romans and not think about some of the terms that they're using. So, for example, I brought this up before. When Christ is stopped outside of the city with some of the followers, and they think they're going to trip Christ up. The Pharisees think they're going to trip him up. They think, oh, we're going to get him arrested. And they're supposed to pay a tax to get into the city. You know, I'm sure Richie Reach would appreciate that because, you know, it keeps the carbon emissions lower. Um, I'm sure New York would appreciate it, you know, 15 minute city. Uh, but they say, Hey, Christ, Jesus, should, should those people pay the tax? And so Jesus says, let me see this. He looks at the coin. He says, whose face is on this? As you know, you know, most everybody knows this. I came to this much later. Um, and it's, it's Caesar, right? And he says, render under Caesar what is Caesar, and render under God what is God's. Now, that left everybody who wanted to get him stupefied. Because he didn't directly say yes or no. He implied. And the implication is what is often misread in a similar way to Romans. The implication is read by some people who support the state. And I had a student who, at first, she disagreed with me. And then she, at the end of the year, she said, oh, Mr. Goldsmith, I understand what you were saying now. You're right. Great kid. She was cool. Um, the idea is, what has Christ been telling people? Nothing belongs to Caesar. Everything belongs to God. He created everything. The very material that's in the coin belongs to God. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and render unto God what is God's. So you figure it out. I've been talking to you, says, you know, to paraphrase Christ, I've been telling you this stuff. I think you're smart enough to figure out what I'm saying. Now, when we go to Romans, this is what's interesting, because they take the word authority, especially in the New King King James Version. They take the word authority, 
And they just assume that that means political authority. I'm sort of prejudicing you here, so I hope you don't mind. But I think it's important to bring this up because people don't pare this down. They don't pull that on your part. Because what is authority? Again, this is where I've gone with the Constitution. The people will say, well, there's no constitutional authority for this or that. There is no such thing as constitutional authority in the first place. It's a piece of paper written by a bunch of people who agreed that they were going to do something, and they claimed they were going to sign it on behalf of people they could never claim they were signing on behalf of, to leave that dangling pretty heavily. They couldn't claim, I'm signing for all the people back in New Hampshire. I'm signing for all the people in Massachusetts. They couldn't do that. Only through voluntary, real contract, free market contract, can that be done. And you can't have the state in any way, even to back up and defend the contracts. Because in order to create an adjudication system to defend the contracts, you are then assuming you can take money from people against their will. Every part of that, every step of that, even to the adjudication system, has to be voluntary and free market. Voluntarism, anarcho-capitalism. It's the only moral system. It's the only moral system. No ruler except God. That's it. You have to make these decisions yourself. You can't put up these artifices. You can't have these curtains. You can't put up these fake walls. It's all window dressing. It's a set. The people are real. The set is fake. And they've been operating under this theatrical pantomime for centuries in the United States. And it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And every generation has its really terrible things, you know, Indian, Native Americans, generations until they were, you know, so winnowed down that they could just be controlled so easily by the feds, right? Businesses, right? Playing favorites, getting crushed, rights, privacy, slowly but surely, boom, 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 boom. Because every generation has its, its new crop of opportunists. And they use rhetoric like this guy is using to claim, well, the state is legitimate. No, it's not legitimate, buddy. The state is not legitimate. You're an enemy of freedom. This is what you are. And you're overlooking even some of the most egregious examples of the demonic moves made by the guy you're supporting. Let's go back. Here we go. This election is part of a spiritual battle. There are demonic forces at play. But I want to remind those who have fallen prey to the leadership of such demons, have fallen prey to the diabolic forces, and have become pawns to their schemes. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 4. This is the warning. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Okay, so governing is not the state. Authority is not the state. You don't get authority by claiming, hey, we have large numbers and we're going to tell you how to live. Let's take a look at Romans 13. Now, again, many different versions of this out there. So I'm going to go to the Blue Letter Bible and show you the New King James Version, because I think this is the one he's referring to. 
Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So what does that mean? It could be tribal. It could be familial. Governance, you don't need government. I can govern myself, right? When they say this experiment in self-government, the statists try to pass that off as it's you governing yourself. No, it's not you governing yourself at all. It's a bunch of people voting to govern you and tell you what's going on, to coerce you and threaten you and point guns at you and take your stuff. And then they claim they're going to have a piece of paper that restricts them. Well, that's a laugh, isn't it? So that is the New King James Version. The question is, what is legitimate authority? Is controlling you through threats of violence and force legitimate authority, for goodness sake? Is that is that right? Is threatening someone so that you can make them conform to your threats is that legitimate authority? Is the assumption that you can take somebody else's stuff contrary or complementary to the Ten Commandments? Is even thinking that you can take somebody else's stuff contrary or complementary to the Ten Commandments? Is the threat of aggressive violence complementary or contrary to the Ten Commandments? The very foundations of the state contradict most of the Ten Commandments. That is the political state. And again, this is the problem, because people reflexively think of the word authorities, and they think state. In my life, the authorities are God and my parents. Those are the authorities. And the minute you start to break that down, you're assuming something that I think this guy ought to learn is demonic. We'll be back with more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. In addition to being one of the world's first cryptocurrencies, Dash was the first crypto project to have a decentralized autonomous organization that to this day continues to improve and promote Dash. Every month, 10% of the mining rewards go into a treasury. Anyone with one Dash to spend can put forward a proposal to the Dash masternodes. The masternodes vet the proposals and decide which ones move forward and are funded by that treasury. Nowadays, DAOs are plentiful, but Dash paved the way by doing it first nearly a decade ago. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya Protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. Free Talk Live. 
Welcome to Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, the creator, I guess you'd say, of the Liberty Conspiracy. We have a program every Monday through Friday, starting at 6 o'clock, that you can check out on Rumble, on Rockfin, and on my Twitter feed, which is at Gard Goldsmith, G-A-R-D Goldsmith. We have some segments that are over on YouTube, but of course they're very censorious there. So if you want to watch the show while we're streaming, it's 6 o'clock Monday through Friday at Rumble and Rockfin. Just look up Liberty Conspiracy or on my Twitter feed, which is at Guard Goldsmith. Check it out, and if you're coming after the fact, we welcome you as well and lay down any comments you might have. Please hit the thumbs up, spread the word, and we really appreciate fellow conspirators because freedom is definitely out of fashion nowadays. You can also find my fiction. I very rarely mention this, but there are some releases that are going to be coming up, and it sort of reminded me to mention that if you want to find my fiction, that is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Just look up Gardner Goldsmith, G-A-R-D-N-E-R Goldsmith, and I would welcome your comments about any of the three novellas that are out so far. I have two novels that are going to be coming out and three more novellas that are going to be coming out as well. Part of the reason for the delay is because I declined a contract with a publishing company because they wanted me to use a pseudonym to disconnect from my political statements online. Can you believe it? Yeah, it's true. So I dropped that and we're just seeing what happens. Welcome your support of the fiction as well. Remember Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And of course you can find my Substack, that being the Gardner Goldsmith Substack. And every Sunday for free, we put out the Sunday News Assembly, which includes at least 20 stories that in my estimation probably have something to do with liberty and a lot of contextual information that helps draw out from those flash news stories some longer-term lessons about liberty, economics, and morality. Check it out. It's the Sunday News Assembly at Gardner Goldsmith Substack. So without further ado, let's get into some of the prime choices, some of the prime cuts from Liberty Conspiracy. And thank you again for listening to Free Talk Live. Greatly appreciated. Thanks for being a supporter of freedom. Governing is not the state. Authority is not the state. You don't get authority by claiming, hey, we have large numbers and we're going to tell you how to live. Let's take a look at Romans 13. Now, again, many different versions of this out there. So I'm going to go to the Blue Letter Bible and show you the New King James Version, because I think this is the one he's referring to. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So what does that mean? It could be tribal. It could be familial. Governance, you don't need government. I can govern myself. Right. When they say this experiment in self-government. The statists try to pass that off as it's you governing yourself. No, it's not you governing yourself at all. It's a bunch of people voting to govern you and tell you what's going on, to coerce you and threaten you and point guns at you and take your stuff. 
And then they claim they're going to have a piece of paper that restricts them. Well, that's a laugh, isn't it? So that is the new King James Version. The question is, what is legitimate authority? Is controlling you through threats of violence and force legitimate authority, for goodness sake? Is that is that right? Is threatening someone so that you can make them conform to your threats, is that legitimate authority? Is the assumption that you can take somebody else's stuff, contrary or complementary to the Ten Commandments, is even thinking that you can take somebody else's stuff contrary or complementary to the Ten Commandments. Is the threat of aggressive violence complementary or contrary to the Ten Commandments? The very foundations of the state contradict most of the Ten Commandments. That is the political state. And again, this is the problem, because people reflexively think of the word authorities, and they think state. In my life, the authorities are God and my parents. Those are the authorities. And the minute you start to break that down, you're assuming something that I think this guy ought to learn is demonic. That's what I think. But if we look at other examples, down here he has, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, there are different interpretations. Here's the New Living Translation. Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Again, they're not agents of the state. They're just saying governing authorities. But we look at these words as meaning the political system. You can't actually govern anything properly through the political system. The very term governance doesn't work that way. Because individuals need to have self-control. Here is the original King James Version. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained by God. So I'll be curious to get your thoughts on that one and all. Let me know what you think. MJ. Hey, MJ Nichols, thank you. I, I see over here, uh, MJ just contributed $20. Thank you for uh, at Rockfin, everybody, if you're listening on Twitter or uh, you're watching on Rumble, uh, watching or uh, chatting on Rumble. Um, thank you for the program, Guard. You rock. Merry, uh, very Merry Christmas to you. And to you too, MJ. Thank you so much, man. I want to play you the rest of this bit from this blowhard, and then we'll go into it. Okay, so here we go. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Cons 
Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. So, this was stated just around the time of the anniversary, the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. I wonder what this guy thinks about rebelling against tyranny. I wonder what he thinks. And let's take it a step farther than that. If one really cannot resist the authority, the governing authority, in other words, your idea of the agents who happen to occupy the state at that particular time, this magic, magic building, as Rousseau claimed, the assembly was, where nothing could be questioned. Everything was infallible. If that's the case, then what is voting? If you are there to get people to vote for Donald Trump, sir, then why are you trying to get people to vote for Donald Trump and change things? Isn't that pushing back? Rebelling against the authority? Why would you want to get rid of that authority? How can you ever assume that you can change the authority? You can't do anything. You can't lift a finger. In fact, just by speaking out like this about the other people, you, sir, are engaging in an act of rebellion, and I think that that is demonic. What a dumb, fatuous, stupid approach to the state and completely contradictory. If you believe that voting will do something, then what will it do? It will replace the people who are in charge now and put new people in as the new authorities. But you can't question the authorities you've already got. So why would you ever suggest that people vote to get rid of those people? How is that possible? We shouldn't even have voting. Because voting assumes a change, a resistance, perhaps. Different people, same authority. The state, arbitrary, artificial, not natural. <laughs> it's just, man. You don't have to take a ton of philosophy classes or logic classes to get this stuff, you know? I mean, it's just so stupid. It's so dumb. A little bit more. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, and judgment is coming. And when Donald Trump, Trump becomes the 47th president of the United States, there will be retribution against all those who have promoted evil in this country. Well, that sounds like a nice little threat, doesn't it? Okay. Gee, that's, that's great. Okay. Now... As I wrote, and we see some ramifications of conflating, should be conflating the state with individual free will. Here's Jimmy Dore. Let's look a little bit at this. Hey, guess what? CTV News in Toronto was trying to do a uh, Hanukkah segment and a lighting of, uh, is it a menorah? I don't know. But, yeah, okay, so let's. Yeah, let's menorah. So yeah. somebody, somebody uh, actually watch this. Over An event, a signature event, is happening here in Toronto later this evening. Our Allison Hurst joins us now with more. 
folks, you're going to love this. I think. Let me just go back. I I, I got to start again. You got to check this out. This is going to close things off. This, is, of course, is the Jimmy Dore Show, and Jimmy's been doing a great job. We're going to keep it within the concept of the Holy Land, but we're going to go to Canada, too. And we're going to talk about Gaza, Israel. Watch this. This is amazing. Incredible. What is planned in Allison is typically a celebration, but of course, this year is very different. Yes, there's a lot going on right now, but this is a time where they're hoping that they will all be able to come together. There have been crews coming by, bringing the pieces to begin the setup ahead of tonight's event. It will be a seven or eight foot menorah that is set up here on the stage. You might be able to see behind me some of the multicolored pieces uh, that will make up that menorah and crews we expect will be back sometime within the hour to continue setting up ahead of tonight's event. But this is an annual event. Uh, Nora will go up this afternoon and be lit tonight. There will be dignitaries and members of government will be in attendance along with the community. There will also be music and typical Hanukkah foods for. <laughs> is, it, is this a prank or an accident? That I was a very subversive. Hold on, don't talk. Let me play the video. Sorry, sorry. This goes away. And so our view, our approach, our belief is come with a positive message, come with a, a message of light and, and goodness, and darkness will eventually disappear. We're having some technical difficulties there. <laughs> <laughs> so CTV News has one person with a conscience in their, in their employee right now. In the age of shit you thought you'd never see, in your lifetime, we have a new winner, ladies and gentlemen. Someone in the editing room sacrificed their job to make a message get out there. CTV isn't having technical difficulties. <laughs> it's having ethical difficulties. <laughs> the fact that someone has to give up everything just to get the message out makes this a very heroic gesture. Whoever that person is, bravo or brava, remember... The people behind the atrocities are no truer to Judaism than some redneck German machine gun collector is to Jesus Christ just because they said so. So, folks, if you were just listening, uh, what you missed there was in the midst of this Canadian television broadcast about the raising of the menorah for Hanukkah in a public place, somebody at the station most likely inserted footage of the product of Israeli bombings and tanks and jeeps and guns and grenades uh, inside Gaza. Bodies, blown out buildings, people crying, terrible, terrible devastation, thousands dead, of course, and um, put it up in the midst of this. And they're like, oh, we're experiencing technical difficulties. And obviously that's going to cause a massive uproar. But what is fascinating about it to me is if you actually consider this you've got the religious ceremony of hanukkah for people who are actually practicing jewish religion right and the amazing thing is it is the very zionist so-called defense that if you are Critical of the state policies, these warmongering, bloodthirsty policies of Zionism going back decades, and in particular now. If you're the the argument, of course, from Washington as well, the argument is that if you are critical of the state of Israel, that is anti-Semitic, 
and you know there's the whole stuff about the Ashkenazi and you know the Palestinians are Semitic as well and all that stuff and you know the way the Palestinians have been pushed into this area and so on but that particular nugget that strain right there is so important here because that very argument now is now going to shield anybody who is critical of someone putting up the results of the policy of the state of Israel, because it's the very people who have said, if you are critical of the state of Israel, you're anti-Semitic. So now they're using the same argument against those people who are pro-Zionist to say, well, we put it up in the midst of this, uh, of this religious report on the religion of Judaism, because as you tell us, uh, being critical of Zionism is being anti-Semitic. So clearly it must be all Jews, right? So that's exactly the thing. They're saying if you're critical of the state of Israel, you're critical of all Jews. So if that's the case, then what they're doing is they're showing the absurdity of that argument to say, okay, if we put up these pictures, does that then implicate all Jews who are practicing Judaism, right? Of course it shouldn't. But this is the way that it counters the don't slander Zionism because you're slandering Jews argument, right? It's very interesting because it flips it on its head. So we'll continue here. So that happened. That was kind of, uh, I was, that was something to see. What? Um, no, I really was genuinely not sure if it was a mistake or a, or a That was a obviously someone did that. No, um, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're. They had to cut off her mic. And then what they had to do was they have they, they had to get a woman come apologize. Let's watch. We would like to apologize for an error in our noon newscast earlier today. As a result of a technical issue, we mistakenly aired images of the war in the Middle East while reporting on the beginning of Hanukkah. We are deeply sorry that this occurred oh, during our coverage They're sorry. of this important Most and special event. Find me an ethnic-looking woman to apologize for the truth sneaking out. <laughs> That's really quick. Quick. No, not her. Someone darker. Okay, she'll have to do. Give her the copy. She looks Let's roll. That's the, it's like, what's the rock, paper, scissors of this situation right now? So they, That's what made it such a perfect thing to do, though, because by apologizing for it, they're kind of digging deeper, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so true. So true. The Boston Tea Party, 250. Lost spirit or simmering innate spirit? Liberty conspiracy. What do you think, everybody? I'm going to be curious to find out what you think. Lost spirit or simmering spirit? Is it the land of the lost or is there something still cooking? Is it misplaced? Can we help people really direct their desire for freedom and their anti-government positions in many, many ways and to be consistent in those ways? Well, let's look at how some people see the Boston Tea Party now and see it looks like we've got a lot of work to do. This comes to us from, this is from uh, London Live. And it's on YouTube, and it's about the other side of the Boston Tea Party, how the celebration started on the uh, other side of the the other side of the pond. We hopped the pond to the British East India Tea Company. They're still around, 
And they started the celebration for us because, of course, they've got plenty of money left over after they ripped people off with the help of the government. <laughs> so here we go, everybody. Check out this and see if you notice anything that might be a little incorrect. The day the tea set sail marked the 250th anniversary. So they started it over there. The Boston Tea Party was the single most important event that led to the American Revolution. If that event didn't happen, we would still be British today. And that's a fact. Uh, no, it's not a fact. But that's okay, because there's plenty more. That was a very, very key time, but there would have been other things that happened. And we'll show you why. Now, let's just take a look at this historically. Loading the tea. They got the ladies in there. That's very inclusive. They wouldn't have been there. No, of course they wouldn't have been there. Well, 250 years ago, it was the East India Company's tea, which was sitting in Boston Harbor and was unceremoniously dumped. That's Manan Bansali, director of the East India Company, if you're just listening. So here we go. We'll just go back a second here. Here he is. He's, he's very happy, very proud of what they're doing. It's awesome. It was the East India Company's tea, which was sitting in Boston Harbor and was unceremoniously dumped into Boston Harbor. So this is to commemorate that event and to celebrate it. And it's a little bit of fun as well that it was our tea that was a landmark. It's part of the landmark event. The company, obviously. I think that's kind of nice. That's cool. I'm digging that. And he says, the company obviously was very well known for trading in spices and tea. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what else they were trading in. Uh, maybe opium? He was very well known for trading in spices and tea. And, uh... Oh, I guess they just include that in spices. It's a euphemism. And he says, this is the tea that was brought over from China. That's right. As part of the mercantilist expansion colonial uh, mindset that really kicked in as the British East India Tea Company first arrival to the Dutch East India Tea Company really made its connections and yep indeed even employed pirates to quash competition you think you'll have some pirates out there on the ocean there Mr. India Tea Company dude uh, this is the tea that I brought over from from China. It had run into some trouble, uh, had a lot of tea in stock, and was sending it off to America. And uh, the Americans were huge tea drinkers, which people don't actually know. It's changed a lot, but uh, the tax on tea, unfortunately, uh, changed everything. Well, you'll see that it wasn't necessarily the tax on the tea because the tax became sort of a, a lesser factor. It was the control, of course. It was the fact that the uh, royalty was claiming the power to just do this. And it was mercantilism. It was the favoritism that the uh, colonials were seeing for the politically connected people that, you know, might get invited to dinners. They were the tea drinkers of color, perhaps. <laughs> So they have here, September 27, 1773, Dartmouth, Eleanor, and Beaver left London for the American colonies, the three ships. <laughs> Carrying tea, which would be destroyed upon the ship's arrival in Boston in December. Cool. The circumstances today are a little different than they were 250 years ago. 
As I said, we're collecting 250 pounds of tea to take back with us to throw overboard on December 16th. And So this man is Sean P. Ford of the Tea Party Ships and Museum, which are pretty darn cool to visit. They're very interesting. The ropes on those things are amazing. They're in Boston Harbor. Very cool. Uh, that wasn't the case 200 years ago. We, we did it without their permission. The story gets framed as a good and bad, a black and white uh, sort of thing, but there was a lot of nuance. And what's... No, no. Now, there are a lot of facts that you're missing, but there's not a lot of moral nuance here. It's mercantilism. There's plenty more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Coming up. The crimes of the state. Eleutheromania. The insatiable desire for freedom. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. We continue on Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. So to have here, September 27, 1773, Dartmouth, Eleanor, and Beaver left London for the American colonies, the three ships. Carrying tea, which would be destroyed upon the ship's arrival in Boston in December. Cool. The circumstances today are a little different than they were 250 years ago. As I said, we're collecting 250 pounds of tea to take back with us to throw overboard on December 16th. And So this man is Sean P. Ford of the Tea Party Ships and Museum, which are pretty darn cool to visit. They're very interesting. The ropes on those things are amazing. They're in Boston Harbor. Very cool. Uh, that wasn't the case 250 years ago. We, we did it without their permission. The story gets framed as a good and bad, a black and white uh, sort of thing. But there was a lot of nuance. And what's... No, no. Now, there are a lot of facts that you're missing, but there's not a lot of moral nuance here. It's mercantilism. It's the state versus people. That's what it is. And those people were perfectly justified to dump that tea. Absolutely 100% justified. They were justified to do a heck of a lot more as well in the defense of themselves and their sovereignty. So there wasn't a lot of ambiguity or nuance here. What we love about the story was that the relationship between Britain and the colonies was very close. There weren't Americans at the time. They thought of themselves as British subjects. Well, that's also a bit of a misnomer because over the course of 10 years, as many libertarian historians have pointed out, the Americans started to think of themselves as separate, as different, and as culturally different, economically different. And they knew that down the line, they either were going to have their representation or there was going to be a split. And many of them could recognize that the split was coming. So the idea that they consider themselves loyal British subjects is kind of wrong on a cultural level. And um, a small spark like this actually changed the course of the world that we know. So it's, it's, it's an amazing piece to look back on and very relevant to our... our uh, as we look at things today, everyone, everything in Boston uh, originates from London and England, and that's why where we live in New England. And you'll you'll come into England, all we have all the named cities and towns. There's a lot of similarities, a lot of carbon copies. 
but they're very similar in, in architecture and feeling. Except, of course, for the places like Winnipesaukee, Winnesquam, the Mohawk Trail, which is very important. And I highly recommend people check out the Mohawk Trail. It goes uh, east-west, mainly west, if you're going to be really following the Mohawk Trail into the mountains in western Massachusetts. And um, uh, that's where uh, Tanglewood is located, where the Boston Pops go for the summertime, the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Um, that's where the Wagon Wheel Motel is located, if you're familiar with Morphine and the song Thursdays, Thursdays, yes, indeed, and um, uh, the uh, the idea that it is it is quite dominated by British culture, but to neglect the Indians, I think, is uh, uh, too bad. And maybe it's just you know the guy just wasn't really thinking it through all the way. Um, can't you know hand it to him all that uh, that much. But you know it was it was quite a spark, but it wasn't the only spark. You know the Boston Tea Party. I I do think that it is. Uh, justifiably seen as the trigger, but there would have been other triggering events. Uh, it just so happens that these gutsy individuals went went for it. Other people, I think, would have done so in some other way. The relationship between Boston and London is so important, and I believe Boston and London have the strongest relationship out of any cities or states around the country. It, it's very significant for us, and I like to think the Londoners know a lot about Boston more than other places. That's a pretty good point. Oh, hold on. Just, just lost some of my notes there. And I uh, don't want that. We'll, we'll pause in the Boston Tea Party. I'm going to get my notes up. Okay. So, uh, December 16th, 1773. Well, let's take a quick look at some other information about the Boston Tea Party, my friends. And check this out. This is a nice little piece from the folks at thenewamerican.com. Came out on the 16th. And it's got uh, the image that I actually used for a screen cap in the preview for the Rockfin and Rumble, uh, you know, still shot sort of preview thing. And uh, Steve Bias writes this. Today, this being the 16th, marks the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, when 342 chests with nearly 100,000 pounds of tea were dumped, it was 92,000 pounds, were dumped by the Sons of Liberty off three ships in Boston Harbor on December 16, 1773. That event touched off a series of actions and reactions that led eventually to the the 13 British colonies to declare their secession from the British Empire. Unfortunately, the reasons for this drastic action are largely misunderstood in modern America. Tensions between the British government and its colonies on the eastern seaboard of North America had been rising for years. After the British won the French and Indian War, the colonists no longer felt threatened by the French and thus felt less dependent upon the mother country. When the British attempted to impose direct taxes on goods produced in the colonies with the hated stamp tax in 1765, in order to help pay for the late war, colonial resistance was so great that the tax was eventually repealed. Ah, but they didn't forget. Before this, colonists had largely accepted taxes on trade, but now even these taxes, which raised the price of imported goods, were increasingly resented. One good that was quite popular in both England and the colonies was tea. 
In response, many colonists stopped drinking tea. In January 1770, for example, 538 women in Boston agreed to boycott tea as long as it was taxed. Some women turned to substitutes, such as coffee and even raspberry leaves. The British East India Company, losing so much of its American market, was facing bankruptcy. Their solution was to persuade Parliament to enact the Tea Act of May 10, 1773, which allowed the tea to be shipped duty-free, special favors compared to the others. In other words, their competition would be taxed to the colonies. Remember that, tariff supporters. And once there, the company would hold a monopoly on the sale of tea, cutting out colonial merchants. Why did Parliament opt to give them such a sweet deal? That so many members of Parliament were shareholders in the company could have had something to do with it. (laughs) Unfortunately, the granting of monopolies to favored companies by legislative bodies is still practiced today, a.k.a mercantilism and tariffs are a percentage of mercantilism so stay away from them they're immoral uh, and uh, they're anti-economic and is still practiced today in our own country the federal reserve system is a prime example when the three vessels carrying the tea the dartmouth the eleanor and the beaver <laughs> leave it to beaver arrived in boston harbor they were not allowed to unload their cargo Other port cities also did not allow the unloading of the Monopoly tea. So, of course, what was the answer, everybody? They just sat there. They just sat there, and a standoff started. And that standoff was going to blow to something after a while. That is for darn sure. Other port cities also did not allow the unloading of the Monopoly tea. When the owners of the ship asked permission to return the tea to Britain, the British appointed governor of Massachusetts refused. Now, uh, just as a quick aside, folks, if you look at some of the British statutes on exports coming out of the United States, not just on imports, but on exports, furs and things like that, they literally had such mercantilist policies that if you were a trader bringing stuff from New England or the East Coast of the United States over to Europe, and you stopped in England first, they would make sure that you had a certain percentage of British sailors on your ships. And you couldn't take your stuff to another European port unless you then visited multiple British ports. You had, And at every one of those, you had to pay the port uh, overseer. So there was this massive interconnected problem, historically speaking, between the the British East India Company as as they did their monopolistic practices on the eastern seaboard of the United States and the United States traders being taken advantage of by British port owners over there. So that was also an amazing thing. I mean, literally, if you had a certain percentage of of sailors who weren't British, you would have to bump off a number of your sailors and leave them on the shore or they'd have to get onto another boat. It was absolutely crazy. And it was all for the favoritist mercantilist system that had grown there. So uh, a bit of, a bit of history there that, uh, you know, I used to color stuff in the classes, uh, things like that every once in a while for the students and be like, yeah, check that, check this out. Here's Portsmouth or here's Bristol. Here's what was going on in Bristol Harbor. Right. So anyway, and Bristol is a really amazing city, really cool place. 
Um, so yeah, the British appointed governor of Massachusetts refused. On the evening of December 16th, 1773, several hundred members and supporters of the Sons of Liberty and the core of the Sons of Liberty were called the Mechanics. And they would meet, as I mentioned, at the Green Dragon Inn, which is still extant. It's just been moved like 100 feet or 150 feet from where it originally was located. Um, that's where it's the Green Dragon Inn, if you ever want to go there. I have a lot of cool memorabilia, stuff for Sam Adams and stuff like that. Um, and by the way, John Adams, has had, um, uh, as milk toast as John Adams was, John Adams was actually very, very supportive and uh, praiseful of the Sons of Liberty and um, and what the uh, Boston Tea Party did. Uh, and, I mean, it was pretty darn radical. Those guys, a lot of them were drunk. Uh, they were not peaceful. They started fires. They did a lot of stuff there that was, you know, criminal activity, especially for virtually anybody. But they were destroying the property of the people who already were taking advantage of them. So it was like fighting back against against the mafia. On the evening of December 16th, 1773, several hundred members and supporters of the Sons of Liberty used small boats to row out to the three ships and over the course of about three hours proceeded to dump all the tea into the water. The next day, the Committee of Correspondence, like the Sons of Liberty, the creation of Boston Patriot Samuel Adams, and that beer is still around, and they try to stay to that tradition. I think pretty liberty-minded people sent Paul Revere with a report of the action to New York and Philadelphia. King George III and Parliament reacted angrily to the news, declaring Massachusetts to be in rebellion and passing a series of laws they dubbed the Coercive Acts. Well, all acts are coercive. These laws, which the colonists named the Intolerable Acts, closed the port of Boston until the tea was paid for and placed Massachusetts under a military dictatorship led by General Thomas Gage. The ensuing battles of Lexington and Concord, or as they sometimes say outside of Massachusetts or New England, Concord, like it's some sort of supersonic jet that could fly still, but the feds won't let it. Lexington and Concord were the shots heard around the world. Uh, where the shots heard around the world were fired were less than two years away. So they say many Americans at the time, including patriots who opposed British policies, were embarrassed by the lawless action with its destruction of private property, so-called. Of course, it was a corporation. It's not really private. But it certainly fit the goal of Samuel Adams, the leader of the Sons. Adams did not ask for all colonists to approve of the action uh, or even of some of the other activities of his group. He noted, it does not take a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority, keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. Good stuff. Good stuff right there, everybody. And I uh, want to get your thoughts on this as well as one of the links hops in. Uh, wants to be a guest star. It's uh, it's Leo, and he's awesome. That's the one I saved a couple of years ago. He had a lung infection. I was singing to him in the car, brought him to the vets. Here he comes. Hey, buddy. He wants to look inside the fridge. He loves to look inside the fridge. You can see his tail on the screen. So there you go. Let me turn the camera, and you can see him a little bit here. There he is. Hey, buddy. Oh, no, no, no. You can't go up there. 
All right, gonna have to take him down. Sorry about that. All right, there he goes. All right, it was brief. It was a brief, a brief sojourn for uh, for the Leo man. Okay, so hope you don't mind me messing with the camera just to show you a cat, but they really are great, and they're not as big as you know, like lynx in the wild. They're crossbred, but they're larger, much larger than regular cats. They're probably you know twenty pounds each, and um, probably uh, you know half a foot to um, yeah half a foot to eight inches to 12 inches bigger than a uh, longer than regular cats um so yeah big big cats so and again if you if you want to look up anything about lynx just go to the lynx hybrid channel on youtube or just look up lynx hybrids and you'll see the videos of them they're absolutely wonderful they're amazing creatures so I want to show you something else, though, and this one is an absolutely fantastic piece that was put together by some acquaintances at the American Battlefield Trust. And um, so um, and a little bit later, I might show an MRC TV video. I don't I really don't mind showing videos of some of the folks that, uh, you know, I've met in the past or something like that. Maybe, you know, three quarters, sometimes a whole video once in a while or the people I really like, you know, show some segments so I can attract people to their work. So check out American Battlefield Trust, not necessarily anarchists or anything like that, but really interesting on their history. And uh, I think you'll like this one. This has great coverage of the whole story. And um, here we go. It's from them. And when did they even publish this? I don't even know what year this came out. Um, I think it might be a republishing, but it says a a day ago, because I remember something like this a while back. But here we go. Check it out, everybody. Check it out now. December 16th, 1773, Boston Harbor. By the end of the night, 342 chests of tea would be dumped into the harbor. Known as the Boston Tea Party, this event was a protest against taxation and British mercantilism. In some ways, the event had been brewing for 10 years. (laughs) Following the end of the French and Indian War, Britain wanted to tax the colonies and regain some of the money that had been spent for their protection. This violated two principles. First, the idea that the colonies were governed directly by the king. Second, the theory of mercantilism which said that a mother country would protect the colonies since they provided a vast amount of income. As Parliament tried to take control and levy taxes, American colonists protested. A series of acts and taxes led to boycotts, protests, and creative resistance. By 1773, Parliament had repealed most of the unpopular tax acts. However, the Tea Act remained. Created by Parliament to financially rescue the floundering East India Tea Company, the Tea Act gave a monopoly and several other financial breaks to the company, allowing them to exclusively sell tea in the American colonies. Had a brush with the East India Trading Company, didn't we? Pirate? When three ships of the East India Tea Company stood off Boston Harbor, Protesting colonists refused to allow the ships to unload the cargo, but the royalist governor of Massachusetts refused to allow the ships to leave. On September 16th, the Sons of Liberty reacted. Putting on disguises inspired by the Native American Mohawk tribe warriors, the colonists headed for the harbor. 
Their costumes had symbolic meaning, since both British and colonials recognized Native Americans as a group that did not want to be ruled by European powers. The disguised Sons of Liberty boarded the three ships and for the next three hours diligently unloaded the tea into Boston Harbor. It's estimated that 92,000 pounds of tea were emptied into Boston Harbor that night. And the estimated value of that lost cargo was around $1,700,000 in modern U.S. currency. Samuel Adams, a leader of the Sons of Liberty, insisted that the Boston Tea Party was not the actions of a mob, but rather a protest of colonists who were asserting the idea, no taxation without representation. The British governor, parliament, and the king viewed the Boston Tea Party as rebellion, and in response instituted the Intolerable Acts, which included closing the Boston Harbor to trade. Though the start of the American Revolution and the shot heard around the world was still more than a year and a half away, the Boston Tea Party was a major moment in the road to rebellion and eventual independence for the American colonies. John Adams, a relative of Samuel Adams, noted in his diary a few days after the Boston Tea Party, This is the most magnificent movement of all. There is a dignity a majesty, a sublimity in this last effort of the patriots that I greatly admire. The people should never rise without doing something to be remembered, something notable and striking. This destruction of the tea is so bold, so daring, so firm, intrepid and inflexible, and it must have so important consequences and so lasting that I can't but consider it as an epoca in history." I like that. That's good stuff. Let me just fix the cam here a little bit, everybody. And um, yeah, okay, that's good stuff. Yeah, good stuff. And uh, just want to mention, everyone, I want to blow this up again. If you want to find, I'll take myself off. If you want to find it, it's Boston Tea Party, the Revolutionary War in four minutes. It's a nice little succinct thing. And what I'll do is I'll show this again. It's from the American Battlefield Trust. And uh, they got a ton of subscribers, almost uh, 400,000 subscribers already. We'll be back with more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. In addition to being one of the world's first cryptocurrencies, Dash was the first crypto project to have a decentralized autonomous organization that to this day continues to improve and promote Dash. Every month, 10% of the mining rewards go into a treasury. Anyone with one Dash to spend can put forward a proposal to the Dash masternodes. The masternodes vet the proposals and decide which ones move forward and are funded by the treasury. Nowadays, DAOs are plentiful, but Dash paved the way by doing it first nearly a decade ago. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to use and get Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. 
Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. So the protection of life, liberty, and property is, is what the Free State Project is all about. But it's an, it's an effort to move 20,000 people who understand. It's about demonstrating to the entire country. That, yeah, we can have a free market, a truly free market. Making it just a freer, great place to live. It's the world's largest voluntarist, libertarian community, and it's, it's only getting bigger. That's amazing, to be able to move to a place where other people like passionately believe in being free and independent. What the Free State Project is managing to do, though, is to put their money where their mouth is. It's physically getting up across the country and saying, let's go someplace and let's demonstrate the power of these ideas. There's a lot of kind of philosophy that surrounds liberty. There's a lot of thinking about it and talking about it. But here in New Hampshire, people are doing it. 101 Reasons Liberty Lives in New Hampshire, a documentary by Free State Project Early Movers. Watch it free at 101reasonsfilm.com, 101reasonsfilm.com. Free Talk Live. We return with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Find Liberty Conspiracy every Monday through Friday, starting at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, on Rumble and Rockman and my Twitter feed, at Gard Goldsmith. That's G-A-R-D Goldsmith. You can also find my Substack. It's Gardner Goldsmith, G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Just look it up under Substack. And every Sunday, you can receive the Sunday News Assembly with 20 stories I put together that might have a bearing on your liberty, plus contextual information to carry out of those stories long-term lessons for freedom. Let's continue with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Thank you, 10th Amendment Center. You guys rock. Okay, so you see that in the small screen. And there we go. This is Chris Ann Hall, and she wrote this quite a while ago, 11 years ago, August 6, 2012. And she wrote about the real origin of the Tea Party movement. Now, if you're not familiar with the Tea Party movement from, what was it, 2011? That stands for taxed enough already, okay? And there was a guy on CNBC who brought it up, you know, we're taxed enough already. We ought to start something called the Tea Party movement, you know? And it, it caught fire. The first Tea Party meeting actually happened not as an official Tea Party meeting. And that happened in Boston, on the anniversary, and I was there for the Boston Tea Party, and that's where Rand Paul and I went back to the Green Dragon Inn with a group of people. We were hanging out. It was really crazy because we hadn't had power in in my town for like 11 days. My mother had just passed away. It was an absolute mess. It was absolutely crazy. And, you know, I'd known Rand for a little bit since maybe 2008. And um, Rand said, you know, that's where he asked me, you know, do you think I should run for Senate? And I'm sure he was asking a bunch of people. And I was like, yeah, you know, whatever. I wouldn't take an office, but if you think you can, you know, do something good and reduce the size of government, it's up to you, you know. And uh, so um, it was interesting. It was very interesting. And literally, I hadn't been able to take a shower for like three days or four days. It was ridiculous. You know, you're trying to like get some water warmed up and, you know, sponge yourself off. It was insane. And and there was one day because we had no power. There was one day because of course it's a power monopoly here and they don't take care of things properly. There was one day where it warmed up the way it has here 
today, got near 60 degrees. It was actually warmer outside than it was in the house, which had become like a refrigerator. So I opened all the windows up and I actually ate my lunch outside. It was crazy, but not that day. That day was very, very cold. So um, here's a little bit more of that context. I'm going to blow this up for you so you can see it. Uh, writes Chris Ann Hall in 2012. I recently read with joy a conservative blogger's attempt to connect the Tea Party movement to its historical roots, a topic I've been meaning to write about for months now. The blogger rightly said that the historical precedent for the Tea Party movement wasn't the Tea Party event in Boston Harbor on December 16, 1773. I actually uttered an amen, brother. He went on to describe the Continental Association established on October 20th, 1774 by the First Continental Congress in response to the Intolerable Acts, otherwise known as the Coercive Acts. That's when I realized I have waited long enough to write this article. So these are nice little peeling of the onion, uh, peeling of the apple, maybe a little tastier. Uh, the fact is the Continental Association of 1774, 10 months after the Boston Tea Party, is about 10 years too late. The first organized opposition to a tyrannical government in the colonies came in 1764 in the form of the Committees of Correspondence. In April 1764, Parliament passed the Sugar and Molasses Act. These acts, plural, these laws were originally passed in 1733 at the insistence of the large plantation owners in the British West Indies. Can you say lobbyists? Mercantilism, of course. The sixpence tax of 1733 actually was never successfully collected. And so in 1764, the Sugar Act actually cut that original tax in half, but stepped up enforcement of the tax. At the same time, the Sugar Act taxed the sugar, coffee, wine, and spices the colonists used, and also regulated, in other words, controlled for favoritism reasons, the export of lumber and iron. This, quote, excessive taxation and regulation, end quote, immediately impaired the colonial economy. In conjunction with the Sugar Act, Parliament passed the Currency Act, which established assumed control of the colonial monetary system. The Currency Act also established superior vice admiralty courts to ensure rulings favorable to British interests. Does it remind you of something? Say, oh, I don't know, Gitmo, FISA, special favors to pork uh, of, of pork handouts to special businesses, cronyism. We're going to direct the economy of the future, future, future with our friends. In 1764, the colonies were in the midst of a depressed economy due to the protracted seven years war. So these indirect taxes and restrictive laws were particularly grievous. In addition to the economic impact, the psychological impact was particularly offensive. The Sugar Act, again, 1764, making it more enforced. The Sugar Act not only restricted the exports by the colonists, but gave an economic leg up to the British West Indies. 
Why not? This reinforced the second-class status often attributed to the colonists by the British mainlanders. Again, as I said, they felt like they were apart for many years before this. So the assumption that they considered themselves British was not really culturally the case. The ports of New England were hit especially hard due to the taxes, regulation, and government interference. Many of the merchants were in danger of being driven out of the market into bankruptcy. So in 1764, and by the way, uh, let's talk lockdowns, energy restrictions, restrictions on energy imports, and a report that I just got to release at MRC TV today. You might have seen it in my Substack Sunday News Assembly about Hasbro toys. We'll tell you about that in a minute. We'll just bounce off of this. So in 1764, the first grassroots opposition to tyranny in the colonies took shape in the form of a committee of correspondence in Boston. By the way, that was highly illegal. That was massively illegal. The colonists did not have email, smartphones, Facebook, or blogs, so the committees of correspondence served as a means of communication on issues that needed collective attention. Collective, wink, wink. The committee in Boston wrote to other colonies to rally united opposition to the Sugar Act and the Currency Act, sparking anti-government protests among the colonists. On the heels of these protests, the Parliament, deciding to clamp down on the rebellious colonists, passed the first Stamp Act and Quartering Act of 1765. And of course, we still have a quartering that's happening now. We just house those soldiers on our own dime in many other countries and occupy them. Uh, the Quartering Act and Stamp Act of 1765, and New York formed its Committee of Correspondence to rally resistance to the new taxes and tyranny. Massachusetts Bay Committee then sent out letters urging other colonies to send representatives to a Stamp Act Congress in the fall. As a decade of hostility between the royal government and the colonists rolled on, Boston set up the first committee with the approval of a town meeting 1772. By spring 1773, patriots decided to follow the Massachusetts system and began to set up their own committees in each colony. By February 1774, 11 colonies had set up committees of correspondence. The committees would eventually be the basis for the Continental Congress and the Continental Association of 1774. As the revolutionary period unfolded, the committees of correspondence would become the basis for the future legislative bodies in America. Yet it all began in 1764 as a citizen movement in response to an oppressive government that would not respond to or respect the wishes of the people. Two of the men behind the movement were Sam Adams and James Otis Jr. Mr. Otis was an attorney who had gained notoriety for his pro bono representation of colonial merchants, challenging the authority of the writs of assistance in 1761. These writs enabled British authorities to enter any colonist's home with no advance notice, no probable cause, and no reason given. Sort of like red flag laws from the Redcoats. Today, these writs are called national security letters. Ah, yes, good point. I forget about that. And are authorized under the Patriot Act. How ironic. John Adams said of Otis's five-hour oration in the Boston State House that, quote, the child's independence was then and there born. 
for every man of an immense crowd, crowded audience appeared to me to go away as I did, ready to take arms against writs of assistance. Also speaking of Otis, John Adams said, quote, I have been young and now I am old. And I solemnly say, I have never known a man whose love of country was more ardent or sincere, never one who suffered so much, never one whose service for any 10 years of his life were so important and essential to the cause of his country as those of Mr. Otis from 1760 to 1770. What country was he mentioning? America, not the British. Better known was Samuel Adams, a representative of the local Boston Assembly and member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives. Samuel Adams had this to say in May of 1764, quote, For if our trade be taxed, why not our lands? Why not the produce of our lands and everything we possess or make use of? This, we apprehend, annihilates our charter right to govern and tax ourselves. It strikes at our British privileges, which as we have never forfeited them, we hold in common with our fellow subjects who are natives of Britain. If taxes are laid upon us in any shape without our having a legal representation where they are laid, are we not reduced to the character of free subjects to the miserable state of tributary slaves. Samuel Adams would later organize the Sons of Liberty, which coordinated the Boston Tea Party in 1773. But let's not forget the ladies of the Tea Party movement, Penelope Barker of Edenton, North Carolina. She organized the Edenton Tea Party in 1774 in the home of her friend Elizabeth King. She and 50 other women signed a declaration and sent it to be published in a London newspaper. In part, the declaration said, quote, Maybe it has not been men who have protested the king up to now. Maybe it has only been men who protested the king up to now. That only means we women have taken too long to let our hearts be heard. We are singing our, we are signing, sorry, signing our names to a document, not hiding ourselves behind costumes like the men in Boston did at their tea party. The British will know who we are. We, the aforesaid ladies, will not promote ye wear of any manufacturer or will not promote ye wear of any manufacturer from England until such time that all acts which tend to enslave our native country shall be repealed. Interesting, interesting stuff. You can always find great stuff at the 10th Amendment Center. There's another one. I hope you'll consider contributing to them. Very, very good stuff. And for that, from that, I want to now think a little bit about the story over at MRC TV that might not get as much attention as some of the other ones, but I do want to bring it up just briefly. Uh, There'll probably be a video out about this uh, tomorrow. I expected it today, but they put out uh, another video from uh, my friend Nick. But uh, just to let you know, the lockdowns, the taxes, the increase of the corporate tax by uh, uh, Herr Führer, uh, the uh, royal king of uh, the Napoleon of the Biden family, has seen the what is 
technically the second largest toy manufacturer. But if you consider Legos more like construction materials and not a toy, then they would be the largest toy manufacturer in the world. But they're the largest toy manufacturer in America, Hasbro. They just laid off one fifth of their workforce, everybody. Yeah, not good. And I, I mentioned that in the uh, Sunday News Assembly. And I wrote, at Christmas time, Americans often accessorize their celebration of the birth of Christ with childhood memories of family, friends, surprises, songs, decorations, and so on. We also remember the 1970 Rankin and Bass stop motion musical Santa Claus is Coming to Town, which, although it doesn't have much to do with Chris Christ, um, does uh, provide memories of the Burgermeister Meisterburger and how he dictated, no more toys. And I said he even sang a song about it. So one has to wonder with this news whether or not Joe Biden could be seen as the Burgermeister. And I write, uh, Jordan Andrews wrote this for State of the Union. Hasbro, one of the world's largest toy makers, is cutting 1,100 jobs or about 20% of its workforce due to the challenging market conditions, including so-called historic pandemic-driven highs and continued headwinds. Yeah. In other words, the lockdown has nailed them. This is Christmas time, I said. This is the biggest toy selling period of the year. In other words, this not only is sad and tragic for the employees, which is the key, but it also is very alarming for others. It's alarming for those concerned about the continued inflationary policies of the fiat money creators at the Federal Reserve. It's alarming for those concerned about the resultant malinvestment of this fake easy cash. And it's alarming for those concerned about the inevitable economic contraction and liquidation, in this case of jobs, that result from this central bank created, central government promoted boom bust cycle. In fact, if one were to engage in something that Vice President Kamala Harris seems to love, which is drawing Venn diagrams, then all those circles that I mentioned of those people with concerns above would probably overlay one another because they're aware of the dangers of central banking and the inflationary spiral it creates and the boom-bust cycle it creates. Indeed, I said, this news is alarming for anyone with a semblance of an understanding of economics, which means that the folks of the Biden administration likely either won't notice or won't want to discuss it. As Andrew, CEO Chris Cox cited persistent difficulties and indicated that the company will vacate its Providence, Rhode Island headquarters when the lease expires in January 2025. Well, if only they had gotten involved with making, oh, I don't know, windmills or, you know, gotten involved with oh, solar panels or something like that. They probably could have been subsidized even if they were going bankrupt, <laughs> you know, like Proterra. Uh, why not stay? Well, just a year. Oh, I said, heck, why not stay? Why not keep pumping out toys during a time that has seen prices skyrocket 17.7% since Joe Biden took office? Why not stay when just a year ago Hasbro acknowledged that it had to raise prices due to higher transport costs? Oh, can't can't imagine what could be causing higher transport costs. Why not keep the corporation spending and investing in resources, including labor resources, when Joe Biden and his money-hungry pals in Congress have drastically increased business taxes? Surely now that the Biden administration has restored the U.S. corporate tax to its old status as the highest in the so-called developed world, lifting it from Trump's 21% to 28%, it would be a really, really good idea for business people 
not to cut expenses by cutting jobs and not to consider moving shop to some other nation. And gosh, the folks who work for Hasbro and live in Rhode Island have such an easy time with the state tax collectors. Surely living in one of the most tax unfriendly states for earnings and property taxes is tons of fun and everyone enjoys the threats of the tax men. A little something there. I'll just give that to you real quick. If you want to check it out, it's at the MRC TV website. And uh, I uh, appreciate anybody who uh, goes over. If you want to give me comments, anything like that, you can comment under the stories. Or, of course, you can send me a message over on Twitter slash X. It's at Guard Goldsmith. And on Gab, I'm at Gardner Goldsmith. So please do uh, hang out and uh, do so. If you want to give a comment inside Rockfin, I'm looking over there right now. Karen Carpenter, great to have you there, Karen. And um, yeah, you know, I thought I would open with those nice memories and stuff and wonderful memories. And one of the best things is to help create those memories for other people. And uh, I really enjoy that. You know, some of the comments that my niece would give her birthday's on the 23rd. And then we have, you know, Christmas Eve and then Christmas day. And, um, some of the things that I remember, uh, you know, sharing with her or some of my friends, uh, my, my, my mom, my dad, my grandparents. That's just awesome stuff. You know, Karen, thanks for being there. And uh, she says, great memories of Santa every year at my parents' house. My dad's sitting on Santa's lap. We all got a gift my parents bought ahead of time. Fun times. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome stuff. And of course, not not necessarily about St. Nick, but uh, pretty cool. You know, it's uh, it's it's an amazing time to consider. Want to head over into Rumble and uh, also uh, want to uh, talk to. Let's see, we've got LT Oracle of Truth is there. Risha M is there. Obsolete Man seventeen seventy six. Thank you very much. <laughs> Obsolete Man says, "Boo the crown." <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. The only crown that I, I recognize is the crown of thorns that was worn on my behalf, I think. So, boy, oh, boy, amazing. Uh, but with that stated, everybody, I do want to get into another topic. And um, this one is just a, a quick one that's going to separate what we discussed um, from going into our story about the Bill of Rights. And um, in fact, let me just bring this up to you real quick here. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So if you get the opportunity, check out the Substack page, my Sunday news assembly, and I won't go into like super detail on it, that sort of thing. A couple of the stories we got to discuss these a little while ago. Um, but I want to remind you of this one. Congress has approved a bill, antiwar.com. This is the first story that I put up there. They have approved a bill that would make it impossible for any president to leave NATO. <laughs> oh, okay. You mean leave that unconstitutional body? He's not supposed to be uh, funding through congressional outlays of money. He's supposed to say, no, I'm not going to give that money to NATO. No, I'm not going to send weapons over to NATO. No, NATO is massively unconstitutional. That one? Now you're passing a statute that says any future president can't leave NATO. Oh, okay. How long has it been since the Bill of Rights was passed? A lot of years. What was that? 1791? What? I let's let's talk about the Bill of Rights right now, my friends. We need some music for that. This is a public service. 
it was done by the policeman know your rights you have the right to your food money Good stuff from The Clash. Joe Strummer. I have a friend who loved Joe Strummer so much. His uh, daughter's middle name is Strummer. Very, very cool. Well, everybody, let's take an opportunity to look at the anniversary of the Bill of Rights. We'll be back with more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Remember, Liberty Conspiracy can be found every Monday through Friday starting at 6 Eastern time in the evening. You can listen to us and watch us on my Twitter feed, at Guard Goldsmith. You can also participate and watch and listen inside the chat rooms at Rumble and at Rockman. Watch the shows there while we're going live or after the fact. Just look for Liberty Conspiracy. We continue with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Well, everybody, let's take an opportunity to look at the anniversary of the Bill of Rights. First, let's go through the Bill of Rights, shall we? Yeah, let's do that. Go to the Legal Information Institute, the First Amendment. Let's check it out now, as they would say. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Hmm. Sounds pretty straightforward. Hmm. Interesting. It's curious that they had to put this stuff in after the Constitution was passed, after the Constitution was slid in as a replacement a very corrupt replacement for the Articles of Confederation. Curiously, I'd like to show you this story as we talk about the First Amendment, because here's a great example of very bad reporting. And if you saw the link to this story, and I mentioned this to Eric Shiner at MRC-TV, I was like, they were calling this a Supreme Court victory for the First Amendment in Virginia. And that attracts a lot of people outside of Virginia to check it out. But it's not the Supreme Court of the United States. It's the Supreme Court of Virginia. 
These people, it's just amazing. And I don't know whether AI is doing it or what, but there are a lot of really badly written AI stories now. So here's the story. Even with the American Civil Liberties Union fighting against civil rights, this is from the Washington Examiner, so they're conservative. The cause of freedom of conscience won a big victory this week against a Virginia school board's attempt at mandatory wokeness. Lady Justice, she, her pronouns, surely is smiling. This is kind of a cute way to write this. Even 20 years ago, the situation at issue in Vlaming v. West Point School Board would have seemed like a dystopian alternative reality. Peter Vlaming was a high school French teacher with six years of experience and consistently positive evaluations. The school board fired him, however, when he refused to refer to a biological female by the male pronouns she preferred, even though Vlaming readily referred to her by her self-chosen male-sounding name and did not use pronouns at all. So again, we sort of touched on this on Friday, but I want to bring it up now because of the anniversary of the Bill of Rights, just again to stress this nugget of a point to take away as we look at Article number, uh, amendment number one. Even though Vlaming explained that his religious beliefs precluded him from calling a biological girl a boy, the board would not relent. It said that Vlaming was not only forbidden to use pronouns that contradicted the student's chosen identity, but that he had no right to avoid pronouns altogether. Instead, it said he was required to use pronouns that proactively affirmed the student's anatomically incorrect gender predilection, sort of like C-16 in Canada that Jordan Peterson fought so hard to try to bring down. Of course, he did not win. That passed. And any business that is regulated by the Canadian government or any branch of the Canadian government has to have its employees or the owners um, answer to the specific pronouns that anyone requests when they walk in there, because, of course, they have completely abridged the concept, destroyed the concept of private property and private volition. Uh, therefore, even though he was an excellent teacher, the school board fired him. And when he filed suit saying that his free speech and free exercise of religion religion were violated, the ACLU filed a brief against him. Never mind the teacher's First Amendment rights, said the supposed guardian group of the First Amendment. The That would be the ACLU. The student's right to avoid discrimination, said the left-wing group, had been somehow violated by the teacher's refusal to use masculine pronouns. Well, the Virginia Supreme Court rightly swatted down both the school board and the ACLU. It ruled that the school board had violated both the Virginia State Constitution and the Virginia Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Our sense is that if this case had been in federal courts, the board also would have been found in violation of the well-established prohibition of compelled speech as the right not to speak is equally protected by the First Amendment as the right to speak freely. Well, there they get it wrong. Again, you see, the courts in this case ruled correctly. The Virginia Supreme Court ruled correctly, and probably the reason they did was because the plaintiffs focused on the state constitution. 
the plaintiffs correctly did not focus on the federal First Amendment, because as I mentioned, the federal First Amendment, and let's bring it up for any budding attorneys out there, openly states Congress shall make no law. As we mentioned, there, were, as I mentioned on this show, David Knight has mentioned it many times, and what a great job he did today talking about the Tea Party, talking about the Bill of Rights, talking about parental rights, just phenomenal, phenomenal show, David. Awesome stuff. And uh, my T-shirt, my MacGuffin T-shirt's on the way. I can't wait. Uh, um, so Congress is specified in Amendment 1. And if you look at the other amendments, there is no particular governing body that's specified because they're universal. The Second Amendment is a universal proscription. Let's look at the Second Amendment now and check that out. So we go back here. Second Amendment, right to keep mere arms, 1791. A well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, shall not be infringed, shall not be infringed. When any reporter, and I've heard uh, a few of them over the weekend from different clips here and there as I've done my research, um, you hear these reporters asking people, well, do you think that uh, that licensing is a breach of the right to keep and bear arms? Um, it's, it's a breach. Yeah. And shall not be infringed. What else do you need? If you're going to go by the Constitution, don't try to make carve outs for it. You're supposed to amend it if you don't like the way that it's written. If you don't like signing on to it, don't sign on to it. Leave me alone. I didn't sign on to it. You're forcing that on me. But at least as you force it on me, you could be honest about that. But I guess I can't expect that, can I? Forces the predicate on that. So then we've got the Third Amendment. You know, a lot of people don't review these things. So I wanted to make sure I did that. Wow. Has to do with quartering of soldiers. I know. What a shocker. Now they just do it indirectly. No soldier shall in time of peace. Any declared war right now, folks? Oh, no, that's right. We don't have a declared war under the we of the all-inclusive forced we of the United States government forced on all of us. The United States government hasn't declared war. No, so, no soldier shall in, in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. So during war, they assume, hey, we can put soldiers in your house. I think that's pretty darn offensive. Uh, but during times of non-declared war, there's no declared war. Hey, Leo, how you doing, buddy? Um, they're, they're not supposed to be calling on your resources to house somebody. So let's look at the fishermen off the coast of New England, you know, off the coast of Boston Harbor. Um, they are forced, not only right now, they're forced to house Federal fish counters who make upwards of $700 to $800 per day. Right now, they're paid by you, the taxpayer, whether or not you eat fish. doesn't matter. And they are in the midst of a case whereby it will be heard by the Supreme Court. The fishermen on the East Coast have brought suit because the federal government wants to force them to now pay in addition to putting these fish counter guys up in their boats while they're out at sea, sometimes overnight for a couple of days at a time, they're bunking with these people. Talk about, you know, having people in your private quarters, like the transgenders in the locker room and stuff. Let's look at the Fourth Amendment now and think about some of the ways that this might be breached. 
contemporary-wise. Fourth Amendment, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable, there's their catchword, of course, they can do anything they want that way, against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants, of course, going by the ancient common law tradition of a public warrant being issued by a judge, no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause determined by the judge, not a cop pulling you over out on the street. There's one of the most common, most egregious examples, as Carl Sagan would say, millions and billions of egregious examples of the, the breach of the Fourth Amendment. And in our spaceship of the imagination. Um, and, of course, it has to be upon the judge's determination of probable cause. That leaves it open to another agent of the state to do this. Uh, supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So as a voluntarist, you know, we can we can put forward the cardboard cutouts of the images of all these different things that they've put up to sort of make it seem like there's some sort of authority, make it seem like there's some sort of, again, predicate upon which they're basing their justifiable actions. They're not justified. None of this is justified. Even the Constitution is not justified. All of their claims of authority over you are not justified because they are claims of authority over you without your consent. Therefore, they're not justified. They're aggressive acts. That's what it is. It's coercion. The state is coercive. There's no answer that goes beyond that. It, the state is coercive, therefore it is immoral. That's all there is to it. So all these so-called impediments and the rules and the agreements and things like that, we have to assume first that they're going to include caveats like unreasonable because they're already caveats about your rights. Well, you've got rights, so but we're going to form an entity supposedly to protect your rights and it's going to violate your rights. See how it works? Yeah, you're getting ripped off. Or as Sarah Jane Smith said, we've been taken for a ride in Hand of Fear with Eldrad and Rokon. Ah, yes, indeed. The last Sarah Jane. Don't forget about me. And that wonderful song she, she whistled at the end. That was great. Elizabeth Slayton, I miss you very much. Fifth Amendment time. Hey, what's this one? I don't even know. Oh, by the way, the Fourth Amendment. Well, we can talk to Michael Hayden about that. Uh, we can talk to the NSA. We can talk to the FISA court. Uh, we can talk to the corporations that are formed by the government. So technically, they're government creations, then are given private status, then are paid off by the government to engage in things that skirt the Fourth Amendment, like say, oh, I don't know, collecting our phone records and our online information. We can look at the federal government paying off Twitter or opening back doors to Facebook or creating through monetary dispensation and giant grants, things like NewsGuard and stuff like that, or the um, the virality project over at Stanford or Election Guard. All those things, right? We can look at the WHO. We can work, look at the UN. We can look at the I, uh, International Panel on Climate Change. We can look at all these organizations. We can look at pork, all those things, all that stuff. And there's another one. Before we go to the Fifth Amendment, let's look at this other story from MRC TV. I mentioned in my Substack, and you'll see this story as well, 
I mentioned in my Substack that there is, and I brought this up on Friday because I didn't think a lot of people had heard about this thing. There's a corporation that's out there that already has been using planes to monitor so-called climate gas emissions. Oh, and by the way, you'll see my uh, story about uh, breathing. Supposedly, breathing contributes to global warming. That one from RT. That was cute. Um, uh, But this corporation has been for quite a while getting a lot of data on people. And they've been collecting it by planes, and they want to start collecting it by satellite. The company is called, uh, where is it? Carbon Mapper. And they're not the only ones. They're a corporation. I said, I got to talk about this on my little show Friday. Carbon Mapper is not the only corporation that is going to be gifted fascist graft and power. That power will be the power to use satellites and planes to surveil people, contrary to the Fourth Amendment, to monitor so-called gas emissions and then flag those to the EPA, which then will add to the breaches of the Constitution by imposing fines against so-called transgressors. Well, maybe if you just call yourself, I'm trans, you know, and they'll be like, oh, David Bowie sang a song about me instead of transmission. Trans, you know, TVC15. It'll be transgressions. Oh, my TVC15. Uh-oh, TVC15. Well, it will impose fines against the transgressors without any trial. And we're coming to that the 5th, 6th, and 8th Amendments, without any trial or any real person claiming a tortious injury and proving it in court before a jury. What will happen to Maple Sugar House owners? As I mentioned on Friday, I was passing one on the way over. They're going to be burning wood. They'll be having the gases come out. Or what will happen to people who use kilns for clay? This is a very dangerous move, akin to the feds paying cell phone companies, corporations, for our phone records and thus skirting the Bill of Rights. Well, guess what, everybody? In doing some research on this this weekend, and that's pretty much all I do is research, try to exercise and avoid those headaches and and enjoy time talking to you guys, my friends and uh, my family and the cats, and looking and enjoying outside when I can. Um, But uh, in doing extra research, I discovered that I had already touched on this. And so I want to turn to my MRC TV page because you'll see this story. And I shot a video for this one as well. Al Gore claims social media algorithms should be banned for questioning climate change, of course. Okay. But folded into that is a little something else. You know, he was coming back from Comp 28. He was there, talked about how, well, he was like, yeah, uh, TikTok is the equivalent of uh, an AR-15 with the uh, misinformation and disinformation going on out there. And where's my wife, Flipper? Uh, zipper. I mean, Gipper. Uh, zip, bipper. Uh, where? Oh, we're not married. Oh, that's right. I don't like that rock and roll music, you know. 
Those people with that hair. We're all going to burn. Got to stop that rock and roll. It's contributing to climate change warming global. George Goebel. Anyway, what I remembered in doing the research was that I think it was coming back from COP27 last year. Al Gore. See, what I was doing was I was doing research for this article. I was doing research on Al Gore's so-called green investment firm. Okay, so that's it's a company called Generation Investments or something like that. I think it's it's this it's Gore with this other dude named, I think, David Blood. So it's blood and gore. Right. Um, But and Peter Schweitzer's been talking about this on his YouTube channel. I just started checking him out and I have some disagreements with him on some things. But, you know, he uncovers a lot of a lot of double standards and hypocrisy and stuff like that. Uh, I think he's a little bit too, like, you know, intense and fearful about China and sort of drums that up too much. Uh, But, you know, he makes great points about uh, Mitch McConnell and his wife making a bunch of money off of special mercantilist deals to favor her family's uh, Chinese uh, connections and things like that. But um, uh, the COP27 meeting saw Al Gore take a bunch of his money. And, you know, he's a multi-billionaire now. Um, take a bunch of his money and seed a company that actually is connected to this. So if we look at the story that I mentioned over at Substack, that corporation, the carbon mapper, is going up. They want to get satellites. They're doing it in planes now. And, of course, you know, people can think about all the comparisons like, what about the carbon that you're spewing for the planes and all that stuff? You know, again, you can bring up the hypocrisy I have no problem, you know, bring up whatever you want to do. One can bring up the hypocrisy as long as I hope one always includes in the statement your charges about carbon emissions and methane emissions somehow causing an anthropogenic climate apocalypse are groundless. You're basing things on statistically manipulated uh, reports government-favored reports, politically-favored reports. You don't want to debate. Your your um, your charts are faulty. You won't, the person who created the original hockey stick graph won't reveal his sources. Already internal documents have shown that you are, your, your side of things, many people have been manipulating data and communicating with each other on how to do it. That's ClimateGate 1 and 2 from University of East Anglia, England. Um, and they cited Michael Mann and like, oh, just do it like Michael Mann does. In other words, make it up. <laughs> That's the impression that you get. And um, so uh, I have no problem with people mentioning to a guy like Gore uh, or some one of these corporations like, hey, how much carbon are you spewing out with your planes? But uh, that is not the basis that's not the foundation for a solid argument it's not the foundation for a moral argument uh it's not the foundation for questioning their their illegitimate corrupt ways either uh it calls out their hypocrisy but it could be seen as an assumption that their carbon accusations their boogeyman of carbon and uh, methane and nitrogen emissions are somehow valid uh, so if they could say that they had some way to reduce the carbon and still do their job, then what would your argument be, right? Well, one of the main things to bring up here is the breach of privacy by corporations that are created by the government. So it's a, it's a loop, which will then feed back to the government this information. And the information that I was able to dig up about Al Gore was this. And let me show you on the screen. Lo and behold, you'll see this uh, this on this particular paragraph. 
I said, um, uh, yeah, where is it? I just lost it by enlarging it. There we go. I said, um, I said, I mentioned Carbon Mapper. I said, lo and behold, Al Gore is involved as well. Back in November of 2022, I reported for MRC-TV and NPR noted that Gore had laid down a stack of cash to help establish the so-called nonprofit greenhouse gas tracker website called Climate Trace, which will collect this private spy information and make it available to so-called regulators and potentially to so-called woke investment firms, the ESG, that want to blacklist other corporations they can depict as not climate sensitive. So you see how Darth Vader would might say the circle is now complete, right? There's plenty more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live coming up. We return with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Find Liberty Conspiracy every Monday through Friday starting at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Rumble and Rockfin and my Twitter feed at Gard Goldsmith. That's G-A-R-D Goldsmith. You can also find my Substack. It's Gardner Goldsmith, G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Just look it up under Substack. And every Sunday, you can receive the Sunday News Assembly with 20 stories I put together that might have a bearing on your liberty, plus contextual information to carry out of those stories long-term lessons for freedom. Let's continue with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Back to the Bill of Rights, the Fifth Amendment. No person, and this is also counter to the Fifth Amendment, because the EPA runs counter to the Fifth Amendment, and of course, there's no enumerated power for it to exist in the first place. It also runs counter to the Sixth and Eighth Amendments. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall that's Article 4, Section 4, calling in by the states. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. Tell us your information. Well, bring me to trial. And then I I can't be a witness against myself. You have to get a warrant and collect this information with a warrant, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So minimum wage statutes, all these things where you've got to report something to the government, that's a breach of the Fifth Amendment. All those things, red flag laws, clear breaches of the Fifth Amendment. You know, you can name so many. In fact, in the chat, let me open it up to you all right now. And then maybe tomorrow night, I can't do the show Wednesday, maybe Thursday night. I'd love to get your thoughts on this and how far things have fallen since the creation of the Bill of Rights. Of course, we can't forget 1798. We had the Alien and Sedition Acts 
produced by John Adams, Mr. I'm proud of Sam Adams, my cousin, and patently unconstitutional, immoral, and coercive. Um, but uh, throw down some examples that you might see in your thoughts, everyone, uh, of some of the breaches of the 4th, 5th, 6th, 8th, anything like that, 2nd, 1st. Climate change, sex change, think change, no change. You will own nothing and be happy, says Taylor Saunders. Absolutely. And Harry Hart says, truth you speak, Taylor. Yes, absolutely. Or as they say in Planet of the Apes, you wouldn't hurt me, would you, Taylor? My name is Taylor. Or uh, that sounds like, uh, Harry, that sounds like Yoda. Mm, Truth you speak, Taylor. Then we've got Obsolete Man uh, back there. i got to refresh things over at Rumble Town, see what's happening. And don't forget to spread the word, everybody. Thank you very much. Appreciate you being there. Rock on. Uh, now we're going to look at the Sixth Amendment. Of course, just compensation is determined by the government as well. So that's pretty ridiculous. Um, and, and again, you know, if we're going to be talking about property being taken without just compensation, uh, then we're talking also eminent domain. And that is a question of the government is claiming a power to just take your property and then somehow compensate you. That's ridiculous. Sixth Amendment. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel in his defense. Does the regulatory state allow for any of that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And of course, you are fined. It's done not through necessarily criminal charges in some cases. They call them civil charges. It's a similar thing to the uh, drug so-called war, putting civil charges against your property and saying that that was somehow part of the criminal uh, the, the criminal gang and uh, civil asset forfeiture. And, you know, they try to skirt these things under color of law. These are not statutory. They're not constitutional. And if we're talking natural law, then the state itself is operating under color of law. The state itself is a fraud. It has no authority, has no natural authority in any way whatsoever. The only thing that has natural authority over us is our creator. That's it. That's it. Seventh Amendment. In suits at common law where the value of controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. Wow. Golly, I don't know. What is that? Never heard of it. Amendment 8, excessive bail should not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Well, interesting, because you can't get fined unless you've been found guilty of something, and punishment can't be inflicted unless you've been found guilty of something. So all regulatory all regulatory agencies imposing fines on people through their regulatory agencies without presenting people in front of a jury, um, those are massively contrary to the Eighth Amendment. Now let's go back to the Ninth Amendment. Ninth and Tenth, very, very well known. Of course, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, Amendment 9. And of course, the Tenth Amendment, 
the rights reserved to the states. 1791, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. All right, turn back to Rockfin Chat, the very fine people there. We've got, uh, let's see, Karen Carpenter says, I met my husband on a jury on jury duty. Murder of a three-year-old was the case. Traumatic to hear and see the evidence. Wow. Isn't that interesting? I was thrown off a jury because they heard me talk about jury nullification. Yeah, I've, I've mentioned that story before on the show, but it is uncanny the way that that turned out because I actually mentioned to my mom, I saw the story about a guy who got busted operating video slot machines in Manchester, New Hampshire. And I said, boy, I've got to go to jury duty. If only I could get called up for jury duty for that kind of a case, for that case, I would immediately find the guy not guilty with jury notification. Well, it turns out I went into the court. They gave us our general instructions in front of everybody. And I asked a question about jury nullification and the judge was like, yes, yes, he's right. You can nullify if you think the law is incorrect. I was like, yeah, that's right, dude. And you should put it on our instructions. That might be a good idea. And, um, and uh, of course that tax paid parasite didn't really care. He was going to go home. He was going to have a fine lunch at my expense. Uh, but then they split us off into the separate courts for the cases. And sure enough, the, the suspect that they brought out, the accused was the dude I'd seen on TV. They actually put me in the box. They selected me and the prosecution had seen me mention jury nullification in the other room. And you know, they can, the prosecution and defense can pull people off and ask for alternates. He pointed at me. He goes, I want him out. And he pulled me out. So I get out of jury duty, but uh, I could have helped that guy out big time, big time. Now, want to do a couple things real quick, everybody. Want to read to you bits of a really interesting piece from the very fine folks at Real Clear Wire. David Knight brought this up on his show today. It was also posted at Zero Hedge. And uh, here it is. This Bill of Rights Day, let's celebrate the preamble. December 15th marks the Bill of Rights Day, which commemorates the 232nd anniversary when the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution were ratified. December 15th should be a day all Americans reflect on the unique blessings of the Bill of Rights safeguards, the freedom of speech, the right to bear arms, and being protected from undue searches and seizures, to name just a few. Of course, the government determines whether they are due or undue. But Bill of Rights Day also offers us the opportunity to reflect upon another unique aspect of our republic, our, it's theirs, the preamble to the United States Constitution. Originally penned by Governor Morris, I think he was a distant cousin to Robert Morris, who headed up the first bank, uh, the Bank of North America under the Articles of Confederation, and then it was one of his former partners and friends who helped form the first bank of the United States. But Governor Morris was originally penned by, uh, the preamble was originally penned by Governor Morris. And the preamble states, the original one, states, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain this constitution for the United States of America. Okay. 
And although today we can find little to argue with in such beautiful and familiar language, and at the time of its framing, however, and immediately thereafter, the preamble was the subject of much debate, all intimately tied to the deliberations that resulted in the Bill of Rights. So, Following the ratification of the Constitution, James Madison, he was quite an interesting cat. You know, he was worried that the states would infringe on rights. So he wanted a stronger central government. And then he started to realize the error of his ways and realize that the, the central government was going to be the main problem. But following the ratification of the Constitution, James Madison turned over a package of recommendations for a Bill of Rights to a House Select Committee on Amendments in 1789. In the committee's initial report, dated July 28, 1789, the very first proposal was an amendment to the preamble. As the report put it, quote, in the introductory paragraph before the words, we the people, add government being intended for the benefit of the people and the rightful establishment thereof being derived from their authority alone. Well, of course, that's tautological because it's not everyone who's going to vote for that government. So you can't say there. It would be a majority of those people who will now crush the choices of the minority who want to be left alone. This is the problem. It's just over and over again. I mean, it's systemic. It goes to you know Locke's philosophy. It goes even back to Aristotle, obviously to Plato. Why I'm in the preamble? It turns out that members of Congress from New York, Virginia, and North Carolina felt that we, the people, on its own was inadequate. According to these congressmen, some further explanation of the source of rightful government was in order, more explicitly connecting the preamble back to the words of the Declaration of Independence to make clear that the people, wink, wink, are the source of all legitimate governments. Well, again, government is not legitimate. The state is not legitimate. Only voluntary interactions and voluntary agreements are legitimate. I mean, it's, you can't, it's just what it is. I mean, it's just this playground that where they play. It's just so stupid. In this proposed amendment, new text was to be incorporated into the body of the Constitution. Madison favored this approach, while Roger Sherman of Connecticut, the only founding father to have signed the Articles of Association and Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution, opposed it. Madison, always the moderate, favored the approach mainly for the sake of compromise and harmony. Sherman, meanwhile, felt that the preamble was sufficient as is. In fact, its worth had been demonstrated by the practical results of the Constitution's adoption. Now, Madison and others were asking for new language that would give the people a right to do what they did and to let them know that they had a right to exercise a natural and inherent privilege. After all, the Constitution had been ordained and established on the basis of popular consent. All right. I think we'll just stop there because I want to turn to something else. And I want to just give you an example of how fallacious the idea of the Constitution being a guarantor of rights and how often people overlook how that is, how fallacious that is, and how often people overlook the machinations. And these machinations ended up resulting in these different arguments about the preamble and then eventually the dissatisfaction of people like James Madison and the push for 
the Bill of Rights. So this writer here, Jack Miller, uh, I mean, Hans Ziegler, president of the Jack Miller Center, writes, so as we celebrate the ratification of the Bill of Rights this December 15th, let us remember that these 10 great amendments only serve as an, adi an additional layer of protection. The preamble itself and the entire structure of our Constitution already protects these rights. And of course, they argued as to whether or not you should have to spell out the rights or if it's understood that the government can't do things. And of course, that's pretty naive. Uh, and that, you know, some people say, well, you don't need to amend this because only the enumerated powers are what the government will do. So you don't need the double protection, so-called double protection. Well, obviously, that's quite naive. And even with the double protection, they ended up screwing people over big time. But I want to turn to, again, this fantastic book, Hologram of Liberty by Kenneth Royce, otherwise known as Boston Tea Party. and Give you an example from chapter three, and there are numerous examples here, and I want to spill out a lot of them. 1787 to 1788, the contest for ratification. This will show you what was going on behind the scenes with people like Hamilton and how uneasy many of the signers of the Declaration and many others were feeling about this move to create a taxing authority, suck money into a central bank, and then hand out privileges and have the so-called great nation that Alexander Hamilton wanted to have through favoritism, through the elites, the politically connected, to create a new political class in the United States, much like Michelle Wu wants for her people that she sees as the electeds of color who need to be propped up in, for some reason, evidently. Here's what Royce says in chapter three. This is a quote from Forrest MacDonald, his book, Alexander Hamilton, A Biography. What did determine the outcome of ratification were the rules of the contest, which Hamilton played an important part in formulating. The convention decided to disregard the amendment procedures prescribed in the Articles of Confederation and instead provided that each state should hold a special election for delegates to a ratifying convention. If and when the conventions of nine states voted to ratify, of course, the Articles required 100 percent unanimity, unanimity of all of the 13 states to change anything. If and when the conventions of nine states voted to ratify, the Constitution would go into effect for those states, leaving the others free to come under the new roof or not as they pleased, which, of course, might be might have been belied by the fact that Hamilton and others pushed for a blockade of Rhode Island, which is an act of war, as we know. Uh, just ask FDR, because he did that to the Japanese uh, before the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Um, and they were going to blockade Rhode Island to force them to vote, to ratify or not ratify, just to vote. And of course, there were all sorts of very dirty dealings inside states, shutting down newspapers and things like that, that might have been anti-Constitution and pro-articles. Had the rules of the Articles of Confederation, writes Forrest MacDonald, been adhered to, requiring the unanimous approval of the state legislatures, the Constitution would never have been adopted. With Even with the split infinitive, that's powerful. 
The ratification struggle began with a clever move by the proponents of the new constitution. Since sentiment in the country was hostile to the idea of a national government and preferred a confederation or federation, the words are synonymous or were synonymous in the 18th century, the nationalist centralist proponents called themselves federalists, even though the new document was not, strictly speaking, a federation at all. <laughs> it was not what the old articles actually had been. By taking the popular word federal to denote the new constitution, its backers gained an important image victory for themselves. The word federal came eventually to mean the form of government embodied in the new constitution, just as confederate came to mean the more strictly league of states idea of the Articles of Confederation and eventually the Confederacy of 1861 to 1865. The foes of ratification, moreover, were left with the negative designation anti-federalists. The term federalist here, uncapitalized, refers to the proponents of the new constitution, 1787 to 1789, and is a different group from the political party formed in the 1790s called the Federalist Party, usually capitalized. And that comes from Ralph Ketchum. The Anti-Federalist Papers, which is a great book, by the way, a pair of books. Similarly, writes Boston Tea Party, Vladimir Lenin turned his tiny band of communists, the Bolsheviks, otherwise known as majority, leaving the czarist majority with the ironic label Mensheviks, minority. The Federalists not only purposely ignored the articles and deceived the public, but embodied this collectivist deception in their very name. Cleverly bypassing the state legislatures is the next section. Since all but two of the 13 states had a bicameral house, there would have been 24 separate house debates to win majority assent. So the founding fathers instead sent the proposed constitution to one ratifying convention, so-called, of each state, which simplified their work by nearly half. So they weren't really the state legislatures, which is also required for the articles, right? Convention delegates were elected from generally federalist pools. In no state but the fiercely independent Rhode Island was the Constitution actually put directly to the citizenry at large. And he has a quote from Governor Morris. My object is to impress the necessity of calling speedily held conventions in order to prevent enemies to the plan from giving it the go by. When the Constitution first appears with the sanction of this convention, the people will be favored to it or favorable to it. By degrees, however, the state officers and those interested in the state governments will intrigue and turn the popular current against it. In other words, they'll stick up for state sovereignty and actually start exposing some of the fallacies within the Constitution. Conventioneer Luther Martin observed that the people would not ratify the Constitution, quote, unless they are hurried into it by surprise, end quote. According to the haughty Federalists, it was to be this Constitution or nothing, 
And of course, this leads us towards the sentiment that led to the Bill of Rights, the anniversary of which was this past weekend. And Americans had a duty to cultivate a, quote, spirit of submission to the councils of the great patriot band. Wink, wink. Great patriot band. The patriots looked at the Constitution as a usurpation. So they were using that PR propagandistic language back then, right? You know, calling people who are patriotic now to potential domestic terrorist threats, you know, that sort of thing. The oath keepers, the people who want to keep their oaths somehow enemies to the United States. <laughs> and this was James Madison when he was originally pushing. He said, Madison gravely warned, either we grant these powers or let the union be dissolved. <laughs> this overbearing tone and hollow urgency alarmed many Americans who wrote essays pleading for caution. Here's the federal farmer from the 8th of October, 1787. And just remember this phrase, never squander a good crisis. It is natural for men, wrote the farmer, who wished to hasten the adoption of a measure to tell us now is the crisis. Now is the critical moment which must be seized or we will be lost and to shut the door against free inquiry. Whenever conscious, the thing presented has defects in it, which time and investigation will probably discover. This has been the custom of tyrants in their dependence uh, and their dependence in all epochs. And here's Brutus, an anti-federalist from October 18th, 18, uh, 1787. Momentous then is the question you have to determine. And you are called upon by every motive which should influence a noble and virtuous mind to examine it well and to make up a wise judgment. It is instead, indeed, that this constitution must be received, be it ever so imperfect. If it has its defects, it is said, they can be best amended when they are experienced. But remember, when the people once part with power, they can seldom or never resume it again but by force this is mark edge with free talk live mark warden with porcupinerealestate.com is one of the best real estate agents i've ever worked with i've been through about two dozen real estate transactions in my life and i feel like i know what i'm doing but there's always the things that you don't know that you don't know mark warden with porcupinerealestate.com found a problem with the house that I was buying that ultimately saved me $65,000. He's a consummate professional, holds his people to his own high standards, and I would unequivocally recommend him for any real estate purchase in New Hampshire. Don't sell yourself short. Contact porcupinerealestate.com. 